As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation. From Virginia Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind today's headlines. I'm Ed Ayers. If you're new to the podcast, Each week, along with my colleagues Joanne Freeman, Nathan Connolly, and Brian Ballow, we explore a different aspect of American history. Since Backstory started 12 years ago, there have been quite a few incredible podcasts to come out centered around history. We wanted to introduce you to some of the great work folks are doing in the world of history podcasting. You might have heard some recent episodes featuring shows like American Hysteria or What's Ray Saying? Or if you haven't, I definitely encourage you to check them out. Today, we're excited to showcase the podcast LBJ and the Great Society, hosted by Melody Barnes, who was Chief Domestic Policy Advisor to Barack Obama and is now the co-head of the Democracy Initiative at the University of Virginia. I'm pleased to have Melody here with me to help set this episode up. Melody, welcome to Backstory. Ed, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, LBJ is a president. I'm sorry to say we don't hear a lot about these days. So what brought you to the project? What do you think a series about LBJ would really bring to our conversation right now? I think that LBJ was a fascinating president. He he died. I was born in 1964. So the year some of the big first civil rights legislation and great society legislation started to be passed. And I remember the day he died. I was still a, a kid. But his work and the legislation that he guided through the White House and worked with the civil rights movement and others to pass has had such a significant impact on not only my life, but also on the way that we think about our country, the relationship between citizens and government, programs that we live with today and people don't even think about but shape our daily lives. And I think that because of the war, because of the Vietnam War in particular, and the demise of the Great Society, LBJ left office under a dark, dark cloud. Right, right. And people have critiqued the Great Society. But at this moment, when we're debating health care, when we are thinking about the impact of voting and the Voting Rights Act and so many other issues, that we have to talk about LBJ and we have to talk about that period to understand how they came to be and why it's so important to us to today. You know, I can remember it. So I'm seven years older than you. And I can remember uh, LBJ just being vilified by young people. You know, we think, look back on him and go, ah, oh, look at all these great things that he did. But, but as you said, you know, we, we have that memory of LBJ saying he will not run again and, and, and just how far he fell. But it seems that we don't so much have those negative memories. There's no memories at all of LBJ. It just seems that he's sort of been, if not erased, he certainly faded in the historical record. Why would you think that might be? Well, I think particularly the way that his administration came to an end. It was a painful period for the country. We were immersed in what felt like for many an endless war. Um, there were massive protests in Washington, D.C. Um, I'm actually teaching a class on the Great Society right now 
with a UVA colleague, Sid Milkus. And yesterday I was giving a lecture and we were discussing these massive protests at the Pentagon and 250,000 people in 1969 in Washington, D.C. And then LBJ did what most presidents would never dream of, which is say, I'm not going to run again. And so I think he left in many ways feeling as though he failed and the American people felt as though he failed. And so when you combine the war with the reality that much of this very important legislation that he passed wasn't being funded at the level I think that he wanted or certainly its advocates had hoped for, and there were significant challenges not only in the Deep South but also um, in the urban North that were making this these issues very, very difficult to confront and very painful for the American people. And I think part of the problem in the same way that we skip over LBJ in our memory is that we haven't confronted those issues um, and wrestled them to the ground so that we can move forward. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And the full arc of the story will be really important for people to understand uh, sort of the remarkable rise and the great triumphs and then that decline. So as I mentioned in the introduction, you've worked with a lot of politicians and were an advisor to, to President Obama. How did that experience, particularly working within the White House, influence how you're telling the story about Johnson? Oh, in a very, very significant way. It was one of the reasons that I was anxious to work on this podcast and and to teach the class that I'm teaching right now. Once you have the opportunity to work in the West Wing of the White House, to sit in the Oval Office, to watch a president, um, to work with colleagues, to support a president as he has to make these life-altering decisions for the country and for the world, you have a deep appreciation. I have a deep appreciation for just how challenging it is and just how challenging it is to move a single piece of big legislation. Now, see the Affordable Care Act, not to mention the numerous pieces of legislation that LBJ was able to push through under the banner of the Great Society. So that was fascinating to me. And certainly even his period as the majority leader in the Senate, having worked for Ted Kennedy for almost eight years, understanding that institution and the relationship between Congress and the White House and how complicated it is. So I was eager to to dive into this body of work. Yeah, because uh, Johnson was unusual in being a success at sort of every level of of federal government, right? He was able to succeed in the collaborative body of the Senate, but then in the administrative role as well. So I can see why somebody who's seen behind the door would be fascinated by this. But we talk about leadership a lot right now in various ways. Uh, What do you think that we could learn from LBJ's style and way he actually got things done? Well, I I think a couple of things. Um, One, the way that he worked with outside organizations, and in fact, the credit that he puts at the feet of the civil rights movement, of Martin Luther King, Mm -hmm. of um, so many activists around the country. And also, I think it's important to understand that for all of the, the mythology that surrounds LBJ, the master of the Senate, as he was called, someone who would get nose to nose, who would grab people by their lapels. The reality is that, yes, he used that set of skills, but at the same time, he was someone who studied and understood the institutions in which he worked, who, as an FDR, New Deal Democrat, um, understood the importance of government. And he used the window that he had when he had power, particularly after he won election in 1964, to move quickly and aggressively to drive an agenda forward. So understanding the collaborative nature of leadership, (laughs) also understanding how to use a moment in time for the country was a tragic moment after the assassination of President Kennedy, but to use that moment in time to move forward an agenda I think those things are are certainly important. And LBJ was also someone, much to the consternation often of civil rights leaders and others, who was, he was quite pragmatic. But he, at the same time, I think was an idealist, um, someone who was driving towards something much larger than he, and with an eye toward what that would mean for the country for generations to come. 
So in the episode we're about to hear, you tell the story of the battle to pass the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which was, according to Johnson himself, his greatest achievement. What inspired this topic and what are the main takeaways? Well, voting obviously is central to a democracy and central to who we are as citizens of a democracy. We talk about it as a right. We talk about it as a responsibility. But as we know, in 1965 and the years prior, for African-Americans and other people of color, it wasn't a right that they could actually exercise. And interestingly, President Johnson believed, and he said this to Hubert Humphrey, that while we were debating and fighting about and trying to pass legislation for access to accommodations, public accommodations, so that people could move to the front of the bus so that people could go into a store and or a restaurant and sit down. What Johnson said he believed was that we had to pass a voting rights bill so that we could actually ensure that people of color had power. He saw it as an issue of power and that that was linked to equality and to freedom. And I think we obviously still see that that remains true today. The battle to exercise the right to vote continues. It is a fight because people recognize, people who sit in the halls of power in legislatures and states and the federal legislature, that if people have the right and act on their right to exercise their ballot, that they can change the way that they live, they can change their cities, their states, and their country. And that battle, again, continues to this day. And I think that President Johnson was right, that ultimately this is a fight about power. Showed us a way forward and a way that we could achieve something that was significant, not just for communities of color fighting for the ballot, but for the nation as a whole to realize the aspirations of democracy. Well, Melody, thanks so much for being here to help me set this up. Ed, it was such a pleasure. I always enjoy talking to you and certainly love talking about these issues. I appreciate your having me. Here's the episode, Give Us the Ballot, from LBJ and the Great Society. Now, in this summer of 1964, the Civil Rights Bill is the law of the land. Congress passes the most sweeping civil rights bill ever to be written into the law. July 2nd, 1964, was a good day for Lyndon Johnson. Before an audience of legislators and civil rights leaders who had labored long and hard for passage of the bill, President Johnson calls for all Americans to back what he calls a turning point in history. The landmark Civil Rights Act of 1964 was indeed a turning point in the country's long and bloody struggle for racial justice and a hard-won feather in LBJ's cap. But important as it was for the civil rights movement, it was only a beginning. African Americans were under no illusion that the Civil Rights Act was going to be sufficient. Rhonda Y. Williams teaches American history at Vanderbilt University. For them, it was not merely about integration. It was about being able to sit in a restaurant, ride on a bus, get an equal education. But it was also about how one could access political power to challenge the white political systems in the South, to make sure that African Americans had the vote, that they had the ability in the political realm to make decisions about who represented them. This is something that Lyndon Baines Johnson Uh, coming off of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, uh, understood. In fact, LBJ had understood it for a long time. Johnson used to tell me just simply this. He'd say, let me tell you something, Hubert. All this civil rights talk, he said, the thing that we got to do is get those blacks the right to vote. Hubert Humphrey, LBJ's vice president, had served with Johnson in the Senate in the 50s. And he said, now you fellows are trying to get them public accommodations. You want them to ride in a bus. He said, but what they need is the vote. He said, that's what I'm going to get them. When they get the vote power, they got the power. But understanding this idea was one thing, and acting on it was quite another. Johnson was the most powerful majority leader of modern times. But as long as Southern segregationists maintained their iron grip on key Senate committees, 
serious voting rights reform was simply not in the cards. And LBJ was never one for tilting at windmills. As the bill would come up in the Senate, uh, Lyndon was always on the other side. Virginia Durr and her husband were friends of the Johnsons in LBJ's Senate days and members of the small band of Southern whites actively working for civil rights in the 50s. And I would write him very uh, indignant letters, and then when I saw him, he'd say, well, honey, you know I'm for you, I'm with you, but you just ain't got the votes. And now this is the essence of Lyndon's political philosophy. Uh, he's not going to be for you because you got the votes because he thinks that just wasting your breath and your energy and your time and a hopeless cause doesn't very much, doesn't very much good. He's a very practical politician. Very practical and very ambitious. Most people who had any interest in Lyndon Johnson, and that was a lot of people, seemed to understand what he was trying to do. Harry McPherson was a senior Johnson aide and speechwriter from the Senate days on. To advance himself as a national political figure, uh, he had to be at least open and relatively friendly toward the um, uh, civil rights forces. At the same time, he had been hoisted into a position of leadership in the Democratic Party by Southerners. His effectiveness in the Senate and hence in the country rested on his ability to make it work on the central riveting question of the day, which was certainly in a domestic field, civil rights. On one occasion, in 1957, Johnson had an unexpected opportunity to make it work on a bill proposed by President Eisenhower to help Southern blacks gain access to the ballot box. The bill was not all that strong to begin with, but Johnson gave it his all. The long debate, the filibusters, and the great struggle over the passage of that bill, which was the first civil rights bill in 80 years. Harry McPherson watched LBJ struggle to put the votes together, one by one, across a cavernous divide. I heard him at one end of a cloakroom talking to uh, Paul Douglas one day. Paul Douglas was an influential liberal senator from Illinois. He's saying, Paul, the, uh, the amendment to the Civil Rights Bill is coming up, and we, I need your support. And he went to the other end of the room and uh, was talking to Sam Irvin and said, Sam, why don't you all let this bill pass? The word we just bleep is the N-word. That language was, was not the language that he would ever employ later on. I've never heard him use the word. But at that time, he was down in the trenches with guys who were determined not to let a bill pass. And he was doing his damnedest to bring them around. He, he warned them that much worse would come unless they would pass this modest bill. And he would tell the, uh, some of the, the Northerners that if they would only let this modest bill go through, they would get a better bill later. So he was playing it out of both sides. In the end, LBJ managed to line up the votes for passage, but the bill that finally made it through was largely stripped of enforcement muscle, a condition demanded by opponents in exchange for their support. Still, the Civil Rights Act of 1957 was a small step forward and an early indication that Lyndon Johnson might be more than the typical Southern obstructionist that many had supposed. I could not be for the compromises that he wanted at that stage. This again is Hubert Humphrey. But it told me one thing, above all. First of all, I knew he was sincere. It was not just uh, parliamentary tactics. And he and I talked many times about it. And I knew that he was not a segregationist. I knew that he didn't want to classify himself in those days as a Southerner. Had he been a passionate Southern liberal on the race question, he would have won the uh, tremendous affection of a very small group of people mm -hmm. in the North and been utterly ineffectual in the Senate. Had he been merely smooth and content to uh, bargain out the lowest common denominator uh, as some, some of his predecessors, he would have been inconsequential. But uh, he, was, he was different, and you could watch him, uh, and you knew what that he was different, that he wanted a bunch of things done uh, for poor people, wanted the government to be in there at that New Deal streak, but without, I suspect, any huge agenda in his own head. He was offended by the injustices uh, that visited on blacks, no doubt about that, and he had no patience with that 
racism. Uh, but it took a long time to kind of convert it, I think, into mm -hmm. the agenda of the Great Society legislation. All that big agenda, I don't think, was really burning in him at the time. It would be another seven years before the breakthrough battle on voting rights was joined in earnest. When the moment came, the forces arrayed on the other side were as powerful and deeply entrenched as ever. But by then, LBJ had the power of the presidency going for him, and just as important, a grassroots movement that would keep his feet to the fire. I'm not going to be president long. But while I am president, brother, I'm going to take care of voting in this country, and everybody's going to be able to vote. I'm Melody Barnes. From PRX, this is LBJ and the Great Society. Episode 5, Give Us the Ballot. Doctor? Yes, Mr. President. Well, I just uh, wanted to tell you that... Uh, it's November 5th, 1964, just two days after his landslide win over Barry Goldwater, and LBJ is working the phones from his Texas ranch. Hubert Humphrey left here about 30 minutes ago, and I still haven't shaved. I got off my bathroom. Now elected in his own right, Johnson has a lot of people to thank, and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is among the first. I thought I'd call half a dozen or so folks and tell them how much I appreciate their confidence and what a good job I thought they'd done and how many more now we've got to help uh, get out of their bondage. Yes, well, we, we are certainly all very happy about the outcome. It was just such a great victory, and I certainly appreciate your calling. We have some bright days ahead, I think. As is generally the case on their calls, the tone is formal, almost scripted. Still, however little may connect them personally, deep common interests have brought them together. Uh, Martin Luther King recognized the political skill of Lyndon Baines Johnson, approached him with the hope that he would see the moral conscience of the nation need a leadership, that someone had to be the statesman and lead the nation uh, on a new path. This again is Vanderbilt historian Rhonda Y. Williams. And Lyndon Baines Johnson saw himself as someone who could provide that statesmanship, who cared about and articulated a commitment to carry forth the civil rights agenda begun under John F. Kennedy. The previous year, Johnson and King had worked closely together in support of the Civil Rights Act. Its passage over fierce opposition in the Congress was testament to the effectiveness of that alliance. For Johnson, that bill had been a last piece of unfinished business from the Kennedy years. Now he was ready to move on his own agenda, and voting rights was high on the list. He had a feeling, which I share, that once you gave that black vote, to those millions in the South who had not been able to vote, mm -hmm. you would give them a tool with which they could create a new era for themselves. Louis Martin was the highest-ranking person of color among Johnson's White House staff. And he was convinced that that political route would ultimately enable blacks to reach a new degree of equality and freedom in the South and have an impact on the Congress and everyone else. As eager as LBJ was to move on this issue, the civil rights movement was more eager still. In theory, the right to vote, at least for men, had been the law of the land for nearly a century, enshrined in the Constitution by the 15th Amendment after the Civil War. In practice, a combination of Jim Crow laws, literacy tests, poll taxes, and intimidation had systematically and often violently subverted that right throughout the South, almost from the beginning. That 64 Civil Rights Act, while it changed traditions and customs, didn't do anything to challenge the power relationships in the South. This is Andrew Young, a top aide to Dr. King, recalling his early days as an activist and organizer in rural Georgia. Voting was understood very early as a life-and-death issue. In 55, I went to Thomasville, Georgia, 
And one of the first things I did there as a pastor of a little church uh, was try to organize a voter registration drive. And in that town, a black man had tried to register and he was lassoed on the courthouse steps and tied to the back of a pickup truck and dragged around the black community until he was dead. I mean, that's what it was like. With passage of the 64 Act, the civil rights movement could point to hard-won gains on integration. From buses to lunch counters to public accommodations, deeply entrenched segregationist practices began to give way. Control of the ballot box was the Old South's last stand. It wasn't easy to get people to come out to go and try to register to vote. Like Andrew Young, the revered activist Unita Blackwell had got her start encouraging her neighbors to register to vote, in her case, in rural Mississippi. The first time that we went, we had a circle around the courthouse uh, of uh, pickup trucks and rifles and white people uh, getting ready to stop us from going into the courthouse. And we stayed in the courthouse, you know, all day long uh, trying to get registered to vote. And only four people got in that whole day. The registrar was all-powerful, really. Victoria Adams was another frontline activist in the battle for the vote. There was nothing to say we even had to be able to read or write. Nothing like that to be a registrar, but all that to become a registered voter. And so uh, a PhD could be denied the right to become a registered voter uh, by a registrar who, who didn't finish elementary school. The people could see on their daily lives the relationship of the vote to the political subjugation which they uh, were forced to endure. Stokely Carmichael was a leader of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and a central player in the civil rights movement. Since they had no political power, they couldn't get their streets paved. They had nothing to say about the type of school their children went to. They had absolutely nothing to say about the taxes. I mean, they had absolutely nothing to say about anything that affected their lives. So instinctively, they could see the necessity of the vote. And so could LBJ, who'd been spoiling for this fight for a long time. Only now, it appeared he was ready and able to do something about it. More after this quick break. Mr. Capson, back on 9-2. In December 64, just after the election, Johnson directed his deputy attorney general, Nick Katzenbach, to begin drafting a voting rights bill. As usual, the president's approach was to go for broke. And try to figure out what I can do to get 100% people to vote. Our goal wants to be 100%. Mm-hmm. I, I basically believe that if we can have a simple, effective method of getting them registered, now if, they, if the state laws are too high and uh, they disqualify a bunch of them, maybe we can go in the Supreme Court and get them held unconstitutional. Uh, let's find some way that we... problem, you know, under the Constitution. Yes, that's right. They, I know that. Now, how can we beat it? How can we beat it was the big question. Under the Constitution, the only recourse on voting rights abuse was through the federal courts. The Justice Department had been pursuing that course for some time, but didn't have much to show for it. It was an impossible system of law enforcement. This is Nick Katzenbach. People who obviously were qualified to vote were being turned down. Then we had to bring a lawsuit. Then we had to go through all the appeals and another election would go by. That just took forever. For Lyndon Johnson, forever wasn't an option. Justice lawyers began working on a legislative remedy to replace the cumbersome case-by-case litigation the department had been using up to that time. Ramsey Clark, a deputy attorney general, was in charge of writing the bill. We were drafting all that winter. It's a hard thing for lawyers because uh, we're trained to think in terms of due process and, and deliberation, but it reflected a, a judgment that the game had been played too long and now something decisive had to be done. But we were, we were really literally swept up in this insistence for some reform in this area and just carried along by the civil rights movement and the concern of the country. 
If it is necessary, we are willing and must be willing to go to jail by the thousands in Alabama. On January 3rd, just two weeks after Katzenbach started work on a bill, Martin Luther King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference launched a voting rights campaign in Selma, Alabama. Give us the ballot, for we know that the vote is the key to democratic government. For three years, the black community in Selma had been struggling to mount a voter registration drive, as elsewhere in the Deep South, their efforts had gotten almost nowhere. With Dr. King's arrival, all that changed. His speech that night was a galvanizing call to arms. We are ready now to march on ballot boxes. Until every situation that keeps us down at the bottom of the economic ladder is changed, we are ready to march on ballot boxes. As the Selma campaign began to attract national attention, the president reached out to Dr. King for help in building public support for the voting rights bill. I think it's very important that we take the position that every person born in this country, when it reaches a certain age, that he have a right to vote, just like he has a right to fight, and uh, that we just uh, extend it, whether it's a Negro, whether it's a Mexican, or who it is. Never mind that King is the most admired black leader of his time and has just won the Nobel Peace Prize. For LBJ, a former school teacher, the Reverend King is just another student in need of instruction. But I think if you can contribute a great deal by getting your leaders and you yourself taking very simple examples of uh, discrimination where a man's got to memorize uh, Longfellow or whether he's got to quote the uh, the first uh, uh, Ten Amendment and if we can just repeat and repeat and repeat I don't want to follow Hitler but he had a he had a he had an idea that if you just take a simple thing and repeat it often enough, uh, even if it wasn't true, why people accept it. Well, now this is true. And if you can find the worst condition that you run into in Alabama, Mississippi, uh, South Carolina, and get it on radio and get it on television, uh, pretty soon the, the fellow that didn't do anything but drive a tractor will say, well, that's not right, that's not fair. And then that will help us on what we're going to shove through in the end. And if we do that, it'll be the greatest breakthrough of anything, not even except in this 64 Act. I think the greatest achievement of my administration was the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. But I think this will be bigger. Now at this point, Johnson appears to be all in on voting rights. But there's a catch. The president has a slew of other bills already in the pipeline. Bumping voting rights to the front of the line, he fears, will put these other bills in jeopardy. So he's pressing King, hard, to hold off on the vote issue and support the rest of the Great Society program first. I'll tell you what our problem is. We've got to try, with every force at our command, to get these education bills that uh, go to those people under $2,000 a year income a billion and a half, and this poverty that's a billion and a half, and this health that's going to be 900 million next year. We've got to get them passed before the vicious forces concentrate and block them. Now, if we can get that, and we can get a Medicare, we ought to get that by February. Then we've got to come up with the uh, qualification of the voters. Qualification is Johnson's shorthand for voter registration. I've I've talked to uh, the Attorney General, and uh, I've got them working on it. I don't want to start off with that because it wouldn't get anything else. Johnson's pitch to King is not subtle. I don't think you have any conception of of the proportion of assistance that comes to your people in these bills. I haven't pointed that out. I haven't stressed it. You can figure out what $8 billion in education, what $1 billion in health, and what uh, a billion and a half in poverty do if it goes to people who earn less than $2,000 a year. Do you know who earns less than $2,000, don't you? <laughs> so that's what we got to do now, and you get in there and help us. LBJ's powers of persuasion are legendary, but in this instance, they're not enough. 
Again, Professor Rhonda Y. Williams. African Americans who engage in this fight for the suffrage uh, don't care if Lyndon Baines Johnson is ready or not. Uh, they are ready. There's an indictment of the slowness of the, of the gradualism around this issue of the vote. And they're like, no, we need to fight this battle now. People are dying. And so they're amping up the tension. Through January, that battle escalated on the streets of Selma. The raw power of the segregationist South was arrayed against them. But the organizers had a strategy, honed over countless earlier campaigns. Martin Luther King uh, knew that one of the ways to prick the conscience of America was to show the world the viciousness and brutality uh, that they were facing at the hands of not only white citizens, but white police officers. This is the Reverend C.T. Vivian. We're willing to be beaten for democracy, and you misuse democracy in the street. You beat people bloody in order that they will not have the privilege to vote. Here comes the register to vote. The police responded spectacularly, and the media was there to film it, and the world began to see it in ways that were shocking to the eyes and shocking to the conscience. ...saying they were demonstrating because their parents have been denied the right to vote. In Dallas County, although Negroes outnumber whites, several thousand whites are registered, only a few hundred Negroes. By early February, Dr. King and his group had effectively seized control of the narrative. On February 5th, Nick Katzenbach, now Attorney General, called the president to report with some exasperation on the latest developments. I called you because the demonstrations are still continuing down Selma. About 400 uh, school kids were arrested just a little while ago for singing in front of the courthouse down there. They've gotten about everything they wanted, but they're still demonstrating. They've got these kids so whooped up there, you know, that they don't, I suppose, want to lose the momentum. They've lost their own judgment about it. Better, maybe they'll, uh, they'll calm down. To be detrimental to your safety, to continue this march, and I'm saying that this is an unlawful assembly. On Sunday, March 7th, the conflict came to a head. 600 demonstrators attempting to march from Selma to Montgomery were brutally attacked by Alabama state troopers. Troopers here advanced toward the group. See that they disperse. The Edmund Pettus Bridge spans the Alabama River. When we got across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, there was a wall of officers and we were told to stop. Amelia Boynton Robinson was a much-admired civil rights activist and a leader of the Selma March. Hosea Williams, who was at the head, said, May I have something to say? And through the bullhorn it was, No, you cannot have anything to say. Charge on them, ma'am. They came upon us and started beating us with their nightsticks. They tried to run the horses over some of them, and the horses would not step on them. They started gassing us. Bloody Sunday, as this day came to be called, would prove to be a crucial turning point in the civil rights struggle. Dr. King said you had to bring the violence in the system to the surface. So it's one thing to be brutalized by yourself on a dark night when nothing can be done about it. Most folk there in that march had been abused and brutalized at some time or other by the police, uh, verbally if not physically. But when you brutalize together on national television, something in the society is going to change. And something did change. With his own timetable overtaken by events, Johnson swiftly set a new course. President Johnson addresses a joint session of Congress to push a voting rights bill aimed at ending discrimination. Mr. Speaker, 
members of the Congress. I speak tonight for the dignity of man and the destiny of democracy. It's a speech that I drafted and I had a draft really in one day, beginning in the morning that it was to be delivered to that evening at 8 o'clock when it was to be given to Congress. The last page is going on the teleprompter about 6 p.m. Richard Goodwin, the president's chief speechwriter, recalled the day in a speech of his own many years later. I went up with him in the car and I stood in the well of the house and heard him begin. At times, history and fate, history and fate meet, at a, meet at a single time, in a single place, to shape a turning point in man's unending search for freedom. So it was at Lexington and Concord. So it was a century ago at Appomattox. So it was last week in Selma, Alabama. 21 minutes into the speech came the moment that the country would remember. Looking straight out at his audience, Johnson proclaimed, their cause must Must be be our our cause too. Because it's not just Negroes, but really it's all of us who must overcome the crippling legacy of bigotry and injustice. And we shall overcome. There was an instant of silence. And then the gradually apprehended realization that the president had adopted as his own rallying cry the anthem of black protest. Almost the entire chamber of Congress, floor and gallery together, was standing applauding and shouting, some stamping their feet. Tears rolled down the cheeks of Senator Mansfield of Montana. Standing there, I felt it too. God, how I loved Lyndon Johnson at that moment. The We Shall Overcome speech, as it would come to be called, and the Voting Rights Act which followed from it, may well have been Lyndon Johnson's finest hour, the jewel in the great society crown. But it's important to remember, as Johnson was at pains to point out that night, that he didn't do it alone. The real hero of this struggle is the American Negro. His actions and protests, his courage to risk safety, and even to risk his life, have awakened the conscience of this nation. He has called upon us to make good the promise of America. And who among us can say that we would have made the same progress were it not for his persistent bravery and his faith in American democracy? Johnson's acknowledgement was no overstatement. The Voting Rights Act was a joint effort, driven as much by forces outside the White House as by the president himself. Indeed, without the uncommon courage and resolve of the civil rights movement, it's doubtful the bill would ever have passed. The alliance forged between the movement and President Johnson was a shaky affair, often strained to the breaking point. But somehow it held, long enough anyway, to produce what is by nearly every account the most transformative piece of civil rights legislation in American history. It was a victory like none other. This again is C.T. Vivian, who had risked his life time and again on the front lines in Selma. It was an affirmation of the movement. It guaranteed us as much as anything could that we would vote and that millions of people in the South would have a chance to be involved in their own destiny. It was really the final breakup of segregation as we knew it in the Old South. Today is a triumph for freedom, as huge as any victory that's ever been won on any battlefield. On August 6, 1965, Lyndon Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act into law. Today we strike away the last major shackle of those fierce and ancient bonds. So far, the strongest link in the legislative chain which the president titles the Great Society 
the voting bill promises a profound effect upon the future politics of the entire nation. It was a major celebratory moment. Uh, Martin Luther King was there for the signing, Amelia Boynton, who had been beaten and gassed and left for dead, and Selma, Alabama was was there for the signing, as well as, as many others. It was a profound, remarkable time of hope and possibility and actual achievement for uh, African Americans and their struggle for the suffrage. And that opportunity does translate into real change because more African Americans are elected to political office on the local, state, and national level. And yet there is still intense caution and reticence about how it would be implemented to actually secure the right to vote, to make it real as opposed to see it as something on a piece of paper. The Voting Rights Act would, in fact, have a profound effect on the nation's politics, as LBJ predicted. But it would not happen overnight or without a great deal more struggle. My fellow white Mississippians, concerning the Voting Rights Bill, it's law now. I know it is because LBJ is unsigned. That, that makes it law. But it doesn't mean that I like it a bit. And it doesn't mean that I'm not going to do everything in my power to repeal it. While some of the resistance came from openly extremist groups, like the Klan, obstacles to black voting often took more subtle forms as well. It doesn't just include the KKK. It includes everyday white citizens who want to maintain segregation and feel that African Americans are inherently inferior and, and, and shouldn't have the right to exercise the vote. There's still a struggle to gain the actual franchise in their place of voting. In fact, this is, this is one of the critiques that King and others have. By the time Dr. King was assassinated in April 68, he had grown disillusioned with the pace of progress at home and had publicly broken with the president over the war in Vietnam. In an article that was published posthumously by Martin Luther King in Playboy, it's called A Testament of Hope. King talks about how there were 900 counties that needed federal referees to ensure that African Americans were not being impeded in their ability to register to vote and and that only 58 counties had them. And he acknowledges in this piece LBJ's skills as a legislator and as an executive, and yet King says this was not enough. We need the government actually helping to restructure society, not just opening up pathways in a society whose structures will not change. I think that's really important. Important and prescient, considering where we find ourselves today. There are things that are going on now in Supreme Court, redistricting, voter suppression. Things are happening that are undermining landmark legislation in the Voting Rights Act of 1965. The past is never past. The past is always with us in the present. And unless we pay attention to it and shepherd it and protect it and fight for it, then uh, we're going to lose the gains that were won through hard-fought battles, blood, death, broken lives, trauma, and just struggle of, of, of people really trying to make a change in society. In our next and final installment, we'll look at one of the most enduring programs of the Great Society, Head Start, and at the continuing argument over LBJ's impact on American life. I'm going to jump in here now. (laughs) Ever since the Great Society by Lyndon Johnson was put in place, we have had runaway government spending. And what do we know about college? I'm Melody Barnes. This episode was written by Steve Atlas, the executive producer. Senior producer Derek John did the sound design. Caitlin Rathie is our producer and researcher. Additional research from Julia Chen. Creative consultant Paul Taylor. Special thanks to the LBJ Presidential Library in Austin, Texas, to Rotunda, the digital imprint of the University of Virginia Press, for use of the presidential recordings, and to the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia. Special thanks to Washington University Libraries for use of material from the Henry Hampton Collection. For more on the series, visit lbjsgreatsociety.org. That's lbjsgreatsociety.org, 
or find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It helps others find the series. Major funding for this project has been provided by the National Endowment for the Humanities, exploring the human endeavor. That's going to do it for us today, but you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of LBJ and the Great Society, or ask us your questions about history. So find us at backstoryradio.org, or send an email to backstoryatvirginia.edu. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. And special thanks this week to Melody Barnes. Backstory is produced at Virginia Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, the Johns Hopkins University, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus of the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for Virginia Humanities. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.